Welcome to Encounter Church. Isn't that a picture of life? Or maybe a picture of your garage? I know it's a picture of my life sometimes. And through this month, I'm really excited about this series that we're kicking off today called Address the Mess. Because I believe we're going to, on the other side of the month of November, uh, get to experience some of the freedom, some of the peace that is promised explicitly uh, throughout the Bible. And so uh, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Hope you're able to engage with us either present or catching up on the podcast or video if you're traveling through this month and stay engaged with this series called Address the Mess. In 1962, there were two graduate students, David Bernays and Charles Sawyer, who were hiking in the Peruvian Mountains, specifically the uh, kind of section of the Peruvian Mountains uh, known as the Cordillera Blanca. And I probably butchered that name, but I can send it to you if you want to see how to spell it. But they were hiking, and these are incredibly grand mountains, and they were in a, a part of the mountain that was not as frequently traveled by uh, guys who were hikers. This was a challenging portion, and while climbing in this one section, they noticed this glacier that had uh, been named by other climbers Glacier 511. While they were exploring around Glacier 511, they noticed something about Glacier 511 that was quite alarming. It was barely hanging onto the edge of the mountain. So after, after they kind of noticed that, they uh, looked down and realized that Glacier 511 was essentially sitting in a trajectory path um, with a village at the base of it. And they realized this could be really, really bad if this glacier just lets go. So they, they descended back down the mountain. They made it to the valley where they found this village that housed about 25,000 350 people, and uh, they did what any of us would have done. They go to the authorities, and they make them aware of this really highly unstable glacier sitting atop this mountain that's directly aimed at them. And when they go into the village and they start making people aware of it, what happens is there's a sense of panic that starts to grab hold of the people. And the authorities, noticing this, uh, do something that's quite alarm alarming. They, instead of listening, they throw them in jail. And for two weeks, those two graduate students sit in their jail cell, constantly pleading with the authorities that you don't understand. There is just a ticking time bomb above this village. You've got to do something about it. After two weeks with the authorities making it clear they were not going to listen to them, that they were just doing nothing but causing panic, those two graduate students relented and retracted their statement and said, look, if you'll let us out, we'll stop talking about it. And after two weeks, that's exactly what happened. Those two graduate students were freed, and they returned home. Less than eight years later, South America experiences one of the most intense earthquakes in its history. On May 31st, 1970, around 3.25 p.m., it shakes a region uh, that is the size of Belgium and the Netherlands combined. It's this massive, massive region. It just gets violently shaken. And one of the things that gets shaken loose is Glacier 511. As it begins to slide down the mountain, it picks up speed to get to around 120 miles per hour at its peak speed. At 120 miles per hour, it's barreling down, collecting debris and mud and rock until it gets to the base of the mountain in front of the village. And at that point... The 300 people who see it coming comment that it is about 3,000 feet long and it's 180 feet tall and it's this wave of gray ice and rock. 
They would later, later estimate there, was there were 80 million cubic feet of debris wrapped up in that. And that's a number that maybe you instantly don't connect with, nor do I. So let me put it in our terms. It would fill up both Gillette Stadium and TD Garden to the top. That's how much debris was headed down to this village. It hits the village moving 120 miles per hour, and it completely buries 25,000 people and eradicates a village. It's gone. No more. Only 350 people survive that day, and it was primarily due to luck. See, 300 children had been taken on a field trip that day, and they were on their way home when the earthquake hit. And that, that event, that earthquake, when it was all done, would wipe out about 74,000 people. 25,000 additional people would be declared missing. And a million people would be left homeless. But no village suffered the disaster like this village did. And the tragedy was what happened in that village that day was a disaster that people had known about for eight years years and had done nothing about it and on the surface that story doesn't seem like anything but this trivial fact of knowledge that the worst avalanche in human history happened in Peru in May 31st of 1970 but the scary part is that the dynamic of that event directly impacts our life that many of us have lived in the aftermath of decisions and disasters in our own personal life that we saw coming for years. Small decisions that we were making, whether it was relationally, financially, whether it was a slow step into addictions, and all of that are these warnings of a disaster that's just, impede, that's just waiting to happen, and we ignore it until it's too late. That what happened on that Peruvian mountainside happens in our lives too. That some of the most damaging moments of our lives weren't a surprise at all and could have been avoided. And that's what this series, Address the Mess, is about. It's learning to recognize the relational cracks before we have the relational crash. It's learning to spot the tension before it's torn apart. It's about noticing the pressures in our finances and doing something about it before it completely implodes us financially. That over the month of November, we're going to look at what is it, how do you engage and, and deal with stresses that we could avoid if we just addressed the mess that we all see in our lives. And to do that, I want to go to a story, an incident that quite honestly feels about as distant as a Peruvian village way up in the top of the mountains in 1970. It's an incident that happens 4,000 years ago. Maybe it's something that you've never even read in the Bible before. But in the same way that that Peruvian incident speaks into our dynamic of life and decisions and disasters, I think you will find that this quite bizarre incident from 4,000 years ago actually speaks to our life too. That we can 
derive not just information, but inspiration out of this simple, strange story found in the book of Genesis. It's found in Genesis chapter 32, and if um, if, you heard, if you're new today and you heard Nick reference the Encounter Church app, if you've downloaded it, you click on message notes, it's already there for you. Or if you click on Bible, it's already there for you. We've preloaded it. And, and if you just want to engage and read, kind of read along as I'm speaking, it'll be on the screen behind my head. But here's the disclaimer I want to give you. I want you to hold on to it for a little bit. I want you to kind of grab hold the same way those people grabbed hold in that Peruvian village, realized there was this force coming down the mountain. just want you to kind of engage with me because we're going to walk through this. And on the other side of this story, it'll make sense. But if you're reading the Bible for the first time, if you're hearing this story for the first time, I'm going to go ahead and warn you. It feels distant and it feels strange, just like a Peruvian village in 1970 does to us today. Um, so I'm going to jump in. Genesis 32, verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over his possessions. I'm going to stop there. Because, like I said, we're about to get into a strange world and a strange moment. And if you're hearing this for the first time, let me go ahead and acknowledge, yes, I said dude has two wives. He has two female servants. He has 11 children. Okay, up to that point, alcoholism is justified. Okay, let's just be real. Like, this guy has so much craziness in his life. And then he's at the Ford of the Jabbok, which is not a reference to Star Wars, though it sounds like it could be. Right? So one, one disclaimer I want to give you before we jump into the story, because I want you to get caught up in the two wives. So there's this dynamic. Sometimes the Bible is descriptive. It's just describing what it sees. There's not a judgment made about it. There's not commentary given right or wrong. It's just merely describing. Then you see passages in the Bible that are prescriptive. And, and they are not just describing something. They're prescribing something. They're laying out a model, a framework that should be followed and obeyed. So you've got descriptive and prescriptive. And what you see in this opening passage is descriptive. You've got Jacob and you've got two wives, two, film, two female servants, 11 sons, and what appears to be some Star Wars character, all happening simultaneously. But that's not the part I want you to get wrapped up in. What I want you to get wrapped up in is what happens after because it gets stranger. But in getting stranger, it actually speaks more to our life than you would ever imagine it could. You see, Jacob is in this space and in this place, and you can kind of sense it even in the first two verses that there seems to be some kind of tension. There seems to be some type of drama. He's, he's sending his entire family across the river. He's trying to get away from something. See, Jacob is one of the most famous Jewish characters in all the Old Testament or the Jewish Bible. Because the Jewish Bible um, is, the, is what Christians would call the Old Testament. And, and Jacob is one of those original patriarchs or the fathers of the Jewish faith. You had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those were the three. Abraham is probably one of the most famous religious leaders in all of planet Earth outside of Jesus himself. Abraham uh, directly can, can be traced to three major world religions of Jewish Christian and, um, and Muslim beliefs, all three of them claim descendancy from Abraham. 
Okay, so this is kind of giving a little bit more of a historical backdrop. Isaac is Abraham's son, who's seen as a promise. This is where you start to get a little bit of a separation. Um, Isaac is where Jewish and Christian beliefs start to come and emerge. Esau, the other son, is where Islamic beliefs start to emerge. It's out of that bloodline. Then Isaac has a son named Jacob. Um, and so Jacob is, has a brother. There's been some issues in that. And actually, I misspoke. It's Isaac and Ishmael. And then Jacob is born from Isaac, and it's Esau and Jacob. So those are the two brothers that are born out of that bloodline. So you kind of got this crazy family tree of faith. Okay? Now, what's interesting is that Jacob is on this riverbank tonight because he's just fleed the father of his two wives, who he's deceived, who he's tricked. And he's getting ready the next morning to meet his brother Esau, who's estranged. And I want to give you a little bit of family history because it'll help you understand what's happening in this parallel. Esau and Jacob were born as twins. Esau was born first, which meant he had all the rights of the firstborn. In this, this kind of ancient time period, if you were born first, you got a lot more stuff, and you got a lot more of the inheritance, and you got a lot more of the, the blessing, as it was referred to. And Jacob's born second. But when Jacob's born, he's literally grabbing the heel of his brother, which is this very symbolic picture, because to be a heel grabber, to be someone who sneaks up from behind and grabs someone, was to be a deceiver, a trickster. So they, they, they call him Jacob because it's a picture of who he becomes. Jacob is a con man. Jacob knows how to sneak up behind and take away something that you're not even aware that he's eyed. I mean, Jacob is this huckster, trickster, con man, and that's literally what the name Jacob means. It's con man, hill grabber. And he has stolen Esau's inheritance. He's taken all that from him. And now, on the eve of what he recognizes could be one of the most confrontational moments of his life, because he's getting ready to step into this land and, and pass by where Esau is, and Esau is headed to meet him with 400 men. Now, if the last time you saw your brother, you had stolen his inheritance, you had robbed from him what was rightfully his, you you heard him say, I want to kill him. Can you imagine the, ten the tension you would be feeling the night before you meet him? And this is where Jacob is. He sent his family across the river to protect him because he's concerned that the animosity that Esau has is so intense that Esau might not just be content killing him. Esau might want to wipe out his entire family too. And that's where we find ourselves in this storyline of this man who his life, his pattern, his problems have all been geared around a life of deception and being a con man. And that's what's brought him to this place. And it says in verse 24, so Jacob was left all alone. So he's not just dealing with that. He's sitting there on the riverbank doing what many of us would do the night before we have a large exam or a big, big meeting, his mind is racing with all the what-ifs about what's going to happen. And then out of nowhere, a man attacks him. It says, a man wrestled with him till daybreak in verse 24. Out of nowhere, he's attacked. Which, if you're Jacob, 
it's kind of not surprising, right? I mean, maybe Esau, maybe Esau didn't even want to look at your face. He sent a henchman to get you. Here's an assassin. Or maybe that, um, that the guy I told you about, Laban, who's the father of his two wives, well, maybe he sent the assassin. Because Jacob has lived with this wake of being a con man. He doesn't have a lot of friends. He has more people he can distrust than he can trust. And so here, alone, by himself, someone springs on him. And Jacob is literally in the battle of his life. Someone's attacked him. And then this, this is where it starts to get strange. It says in verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed them there. So Jacob called the place Penel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Penel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. I told you it was about to get strange, right? I warned you. So here's what I want to do. I want to step back a little bit. So what Jacob has started, he thinks he's engaged with this assassin, this hitman, this one of kind of the hired goons of maybe his brother or the father, his father-in-law. And yet somewhere in the midst of the battle, this man he's fighting does something that clearly communicates he's not just a man. Because you would think after battling all night, you would, you're probably matched kind of head on, head on. This is one of those kind of like clearly neither one of them stronger than the other. They're going back and forth and back and forth. And then the man touches Jacob's hip and Jacob fills it. This man communicates, there's far more power and strength than I have because I touched your hip and I knocked it out of socket. This is, a, this is a really powerful touch. And at that moment, Jacob realizes, I'm not fighting a man. I'm actually engaged with something supernatural. That's kind of this light bulb moment for him. That's why it gets a, that's strange, but that's why it gets a little, little weird where they start asking for names and blessings. And, because in the ancient, kind of the ancient world, if you've read the Greek mythologies, this idea of God stepping into earth and engaging with humans wasn't completely out of nowhere. There was this kind of superstitious belief that that happened periodically. And so Jacob is, is part of this ancient world. He believes that sometimes the angels step in and there's something that happens. And that's what Jacob realizes in this moment is I am actually wrestling with an angel. And Jacob doesn't let go because now he realizes there was this idea in the ancient world that if you were battling a supernatural being, if you didn't let go of them, they would have to bless you. And you even see that a little bit today in, in kind of the idea of the leprechaun, right? Even some, if you could just grab a hold of them, you get all the gold at the end of the rainbow. 
This is this kind of ancient superstitious notion that is the common belief of the people in the day. And so that's why Jacob's not letting go. Jacob's like, no, 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 you can give me something. But in the midst of all of this strange story, what we could easily miss is that this is written for an original audience of people who wouldn't have gotten caught up with the multiple wives or bogged down with Jacob fighting an angel. And you can tell that because of the last verse I read, which was probably the point where you're like, what? Where I said, therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Sounds like a tongue twister almost. Well, this is written because the writer of Genesis is writing this for a people in the day who are reading it, and they're like, oh, that's why we don't eat that part of the meat. It's this subtle statement that you can run through, but this is written for an audience living thousands and thousands of years ago. And here's why this is important, because they hear a different story than what we hear. They recognize that in the midst of these two or three verses, there is this powerful symbolic picture happening. That this is not some strange, the angel steps down to arm wrestle with Jacob. This is really significant and symbolic in Jacob's life. And that's why I want to draw attention to that last verse, because it's one of those switches for us that lets us know we've stepped into someone else's world, and so now we have to start playing by their rules and the unfolding of how they would have heard it. Because the way they've heard it, what the, they would have gotten out of it actually translates to what we can get out of it. So now that I've kind of given you a disclaimer, let's step into their world. And in the course of two verses, let me help you understand why this original audience who would have just heard why they didn't eat this piece of meat would have been directly impacted by the storyline. You see, first of all, you find out that there's this engagement. What's your name? There's this idea of name going back and forth. There seems to be this kind of like focus on the location. All of that's significant. You see, for a Jewish listener, a Jewish reader, this ancient Eastern mindset, your name wasn't something that your parents gave you. It was a destiny. It was your character. Your name represented something. It meant something. It had weight on your life. He was named Jacob because he was a deceiver. He was a hill grabber. He was a con man. That was his name. He was a man who his entire life had avoided his problems. He went around his problems and conned his way out of them. He didn't confront them. He didn't acknowledge them. He weaseled his way out every single time. That's why his name was Jacob. And that's why the angel says, that's not your name anymore. Your name is Israel. Because Israel meant someone who struggled with God. But then, it, if you notice, it says, Jacob calls the place Penel, which meant face-to-face, Here's why his name gets changed. Because the entire, his entire life, he had been a man who grabbed people's heels. He had been a man who snuck up from behind and stabbed them in the back. And now Jacob is doing something he's never done before. He's face to face with his problems. 
He's confronted his problems. He's actually struggling. He's not being sneaky. He's not being a con man. He is addressing the mess in his life. He's on that riverside that night because he has had a pattern his entire life of deceiving and conning and tricking and conniving his way to get what he wants relationally, financially. And he's left this wake of destruction behind him because he never addressed the mess in his life. He never stared face to face with his problems. He avoided them. That's why the angel says to him, your name is Israel. That's why Jacob calls the place Penel, because he went face to face with God. Jacob has this defining moment of his life. But here's the second part of this profound truth and what's unfolding. is There's a reason this writer tells us exactly, like you could travel to Israel today and go to the exact same spot Jacob was at. This is so specific. He tells us the exact spot that Jacob is at for a reason. You see, for the, for the ancient Jewish reader, and even in some modern Jewish thought today, your preferred future Like that your destiny was not some figurative idea. It was wrapped up in geography. And it's why you've heard it probably in the Bible or have heard people reference the promised land. For a Jewish mind in that day and even today in some kind of sects of the Jewish population, their idea of their preferred future was wrapped up in the geography of the promised land. What God desired for you in life, the best that God had for you, was geographically bound. And the river that he's sleeping on, on this side of the river, he's looking on the other side at the promised land. That over there on the other side of the river is the promised land. And where he is right now in his present moment is not his preferred future. It's not the best that God has for him. It's not what he desires out in life but it's what his choices had left him to. He's sleeping on this side of the river across from the promised land, his preferred future. And here's where I think it gets really profound when you push them together, is that the only way Jacob could move out of his present into his promised land and his preferred future was for him to face his problems there on the riverbank. And that dynamic pressed into our lives is that for some of us, we are standing and living in this space over here, trapped and defined by the choices we've made, the decisions that we've engaged with, the relationships that we've damaged, the past that we've come from that's still living inside of us, and the preferred future we desire, the future that we long for, the me that we want to be, is on the other side of that river. And the only way you and I cross over to get to this space is to address the mess in our own lives. Because you and I have choices that we could make today that could transform our future, couldn't we? There are choices you could make relationally. There are choices you could make financially. There are choices that you can make in your career, with your children, with your future spouse. There are character choices you can make today when you're all by yourself that could transform your future. And that's why I said, while this story feels so distant, 
it's profoundly present in its implications. That for many of us, we are living on the other side of the promised land. And our ability to cross over into that promised land, into the preferred future that God has for us, is only attainable if we're willing to address the mess in our lives. If we're willing to lean into those problems that have plagued us our entire lives. And instead of avoiding them, address them. And that may mean there's a difficult conversation you need to have with your spouse because that relational tension has hidden underneath the the surface for so long, but you both know it's there. And for you to move into that marriage that you desired when you've said, I do, all those years ago, the only way you move into that is for you to address the mess. We were having a bit of a family crisis that we were walking through this week, and remember we were talking with some, some siblings, and I said, here's the encouraging and yet equally terrifying part about marriage. You get what you get because you did it. At the end of the day, no one else can be blamed for how good or how bad your marriage is because you're the only two people who are going to build it. If you don't like it, it's not your parents' fault. It's not what you came out of. It's it's not the friends that you had. It's your fault. You built it. And whether you decide to build something that's great or that implodes depends on you. That there's this power in recognizing that in every area of our lives that we can move into that preferred future we desire, but it only happens if we're willing to address the mess in our lives. So what's the mess that you have, that you've avoided? That's the question I have for you this month. To ask it another way, what's the me that you want to be? What would that me say about where you are right now? What choices would that me be making right now? Would that me be doing a little thing or a lot of things different than what you're currently doing? That's what I mean when I said, what's the mess that you need to address? And I get that it's difficult, and I get that it's scary. That's what the rest of this month is about. It's about leaning in to that mess. And how do we navigate addressing a mess that may feel so large and so intimidating? But I also recognize that for some of us, you hear this story and you hear address the mess and you're like, hey, that would have been really helpful eight years ago or six years ago. I've already worked through that divorce. I can't go back and address a mess. It's done. Or I'm not sure that my mess is worth addressing because it's a hot mess, if you know what I mean. And here's the encouragement I would give to you, because some of us, we feel like this. We feel like we're stranded and stuck on the other side of a future that we will never have, on the other side of a marriage that we will never have, on another side of a relationship with our kids that we will never have, on the other side of a career that we will never attain, right? We can live stranded and stuck in this space. And here's the encouragement I have for you, if you'll allow me to kind of press in a little bit, is that going back to Jewish history, when God introduces himself throughout the Bible, he, he, he says, hi, I'm God. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. And I'm the God of Jacob. But Jacob's name is now Israel. 
He's the one who has the 12 sons because there's another one that comes. And those 12 sons become the tribe that's now the modern day nation of Israel. That's why they're called Israel because he's literally the father of a nation. But notice God doesn't introduce himself in Exodus or Numbers or Deuteronomy or any of those other books as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He says, hey, I'm the God of Jacob. And that's powerful. It's like, hey, I'm the God of this guy, the broken guy, the guy whose life was in ruins, the guy who had made choices that had destroyed him. I'm that guy's God. I'm, God I'm, I'm, I'm his too, but I want you to realize something. I'm the God of Jacob. That whenever God introduced himself that way, he was not merely describing what he had done in the past. He was making a declaration about what God still can do in the present. That he can be the God of Jacob in your Jacob space of life today too. That he can bring transformation. He can bring hope. He can bring repair. He can bring redemption to your relationships, to you internally, to your marriage, to your family, to those relationships that have lived in this wake of disaster for decades. He is that God who brings and steps and moves and can take us across the river into our preferred future. He's the God of Jacob. And for some of us here today, that's what you need to hear out of everything I've said in the last 30 minutes is that he is still the God of Jacob, which means none of you, me included, have walked into this room outside the bounds of what he is able to do. None of us have brought a relationship in. None of us have brought circumstances in or character issues in that he is not able to step into with you and transform. And over this next month, as we begin to step into this series called Address the Mess, that what we will find is that on the other side of our mess is this glorious message of hope that the God of Jacob can transform us into Israel and can move us into a life of better decisions and fewer regrets. And he does it by transforming the core of who we are and infusing hope literally down into our soul. And I know that I have opened up and stirred so many things that we're not able to unpack because Sunday morning, at the end of the day, while I would love to preach for 65 minutes and give you the rest of the story, none of you have ever, when I've walked off the stage, said encore, right? And that's why we have created spaces and, and these kind of environments where you can continue the conversation, whether it's in life group, where we take the message and we break it down into personal, professional life and have questions where we unpack them deeper, or whether it's for those who are maybe saying, you know what, I'm stuck over here. I don't know what it means to become Israel, but I know that I need that. I need to step across that river. We've created a space for you to walk through and to have a space to ask questions about faith and to have a, a place that's safe enough to bring your doubts and your struggles to dialogue about what does it mean to be a Christian? What does Christians believe? 
that we've created those environments where we can continue the conversation beyond what just happens on Sunday morning. And like Nick said earlier, it's in the app. And so if you click on starting point or swing by starting point when you leave, and starting points just are like little kiosk on the way out that we just want to help you get started, whatever that next step is. And if you want to do that electronically or physically in person, we'd like to help you step into that environment where you can continue the conversation that maybe God stirred inside of you today that he desires to have with you. And what I'd like to do that we do every single week is uh, we, we like to carve out space because life is hectic and frantic and we, we want this to be both hopeful and helpful. And we realize if we don't engage, if we don't carve out space, it can be lost. It, it, and sometimes unless I tell Siri to remind me, it's gone away. And so we've kind of carved out uh, a song at the end of each one of our services. And it's, the intention is just to give us a place to decompress and to maybe kind of process internally, maybe what's that next step for me? What did I hear today that I need to apply today? Or what did I hear today that I need to think about more? Or what did I, what's something I should do out of this today to start to move into that preferred future? And that's why we have this song. And today the song is uh, entitled, The Rock Won't Move. And it's just... It's about the God of Jacob. It's about a God who's the same God who he was and is and is to come. The same God who transformed Jacob and brought hope in his hopeless situation is the same God who can step in to your situation and bring hope too. And that's what that song is about. It's just declaring that he's the rock and he's, he's sure and he's grounded and he's the same and he can do the same in my life that he did in Jacob's life too. So I invite you to stand. The band's going to lead us. And you may notice at a certain point of the song, there's a basket passed in front of you. And if you're here today for the first time, let me tell you what that's about. Um, one of the things that you'll, you'll notice after you spend a little bit of time with us at Encounter Church is that we are a generous people. We believe in the power of generosity because our God is a God who is generous. So we are very generous as a people. And the reason we're generous as a church and what we do in this community and around um, the world is out of the generosity of Encounter Church. And so for those who call Encounter Church home, we have this space carved out so that we can, through the app or through actual just giving, we, we practice that generosity. And that's the bedrock of why we're generous in our community. If you're, you're new here today, that basket's for you to be able to just to write and fill out the connection card to let us know how we can pray for you, how we can get to know you. That's, that's there for your reason. And if you're a little bit more electronically inclined, that's what the app's for. So we tried to make sure that we carve out space for all of us to have a place to kind of process what God has started conversationally with us today. So let me pray. Uh, the band's going to lead us and we're going to respond and declare that the God of Jacob is still the God of Jacob today. God, thank you. Thank you that you're gracious, that you're good, that you, uh, that you step in, not just to ancient times and engage uh, people then, but that you step into modern times and engage us today too. Thank you that you are the rock that won't move, that you're still the God of Jacob who's transforming today like you transformed that day. So may you encourage us, may you inspire us, may you stir within us the hope 
that you bring to our hopeless situations. And may we over this month lean in with courage and with conviction that you have a better life, a fuller life, a whole life for us. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen.